today on Ag News Daily. Well, we raise uh, wheat, corn, sunflowers in a rotation, and no-till is uh, the name of the game for us because we're in pretty limited rainfall areas. It's We've practiced no-till for quite a long time, and we were probably one of the earliest adopters of no-till on a large scale in this part of the Great Plains. And listeners, welcome back. we got a Friday edition of the Ag News Daily Podcast here on November 3rd, 2023. Just myself here out with you while Delaney's on the road. So give me a little bit of time here to get you some headlines before we get into our great conversation for today. We've got more of the same on the weather front, it seems like. Should be cloudy but warmer than usual here in Iowa. We still have our dry weather in southwestern Missouri and parts of Nebraska. That could lead to those fire hazards. National Weather Service is stating that, again, that relatively low humidity and high winds of 20 to 25 miles per hour could see wildfire risk increase. That is certainly going to spread if one does start. Those gusts of up to 30 miles per hour are possible this afternoon. So as of right now, it looks like mostly clear skies, no precipitation in the Midwest. And a majority of what we're looking at is just fire risks for the time being. We also have another lawsuit, file suit, Compass Group USA, a contract food services company based in Charlotte, North Carolina, filed their suit on Tuesday. They're alleging, again, price fixing since 2015 by the big four beef packing companies. The complaint alleges, again, Tyson's Foods, Cargill, JBS, National Beef, all conspired to limit the supply of beef in the United States, hereby artificially inflating the prices. The second suit of the big four now has come about within the last two weeks. Another group of small distributors, like we reported on last week, was the one that was filed prior. Allegations in the latest lawsuit are similar to the others that have been filed that have all led to settlements. And settlements have been in tens of millions of dollars and have been led to scrutiny by the Department of Justice in Congress. In August, antitrust claims came against the big four by a group of ranchers, but that was dismissed by a federal judge in Minnesota. So quite interesting there. We'll see if that has the makings of another settlement or if that case itself actually gets dismissed. We've got Kansas State University leading in the climate change food strengthening initiative. So we talked a little bit about how some research fund dollars was getting funneled their directions, more details there. K-State will lead the Feed the Future Climate Resilient Cereals Innovational Lab, which of course is going to be short down to an acronym. The CRCIL is now going to focus on sorghum, millet, wheat, and rice as major crops that need to be protected and need to have uh, certain characteristics analyzed to ensure their longevity. Kansas researchers will turn their focus to those crops as they are deemed essential to stamping out world hunger. The U.S. Agency for International Development awarded Kansas State University $22 million to research those crops and figure out the best promotion of them, as well as the best growing conditions and help create global stability amongst climate change that is happening. The ag industry is looking for this Feed the Future Climate Resilient cereals to conduct much needed research to protect 
and think about maybe different areas for where these crops can be grown. They're also talking about working with international partners such as those in Southern Asia and Eastern and Western Africa, as well as Latin America. So kind of interesting there <clears throat> to see those funds being put in after the uh, cereals as far as that goes. But staying in Missouri, the Missouri Grain Facility is now designated as a sustainability hub. So Scolier has designated the grain facility in Adrian, Missouri as a sustainable showcase hub located an hour south of Kansas City. The facility was built in 2012, but underwent upgrades in 2022. So last year, they looked at increasing unloading speeds and storage capacity. It currently handles crops such as corn, wheat, and soybeans, and serves as a soybean processor for poultry, feeders, and flour mills. The company has already launched several sustainability features on this site and is planning to come out with more. Sustainability upgrades already include, uh, already at the facility, allows Scolier to reduce their own energy and fuel footprint. As they continue to develop plans and see agriculture growing in their area, this sustainability hub will show that they're willing to engage and partner on solutions with all groups in the US. They use variable frequency drive motors where they've installed on their facilities and their bunkers. Together, they will work with other electrical cooperatives in the area to help reduce their annual energy usage by nearly 67%. Another upgrade was to track the overall fuel usage and energy usage per bushel, and they will use that data to help them going forward. Some of the other things they're going to work towards is on-site solar and environmental health and safety training as well. So uh, they will continue to take a look at what that has in store for us. So that was interesting there. Another story coming out of Missouri. But we're going to jump out of Iowa. You would think this next headline about record-setting land prices would come from Iowa itself. It does not. The headline itself here states that Piemba County, North Dakota, is ready to set and move Iowa out of the land sale <clears throat> leadership as this record land sale came about. So yesterday, even though mortgages are at a near 20 year high, as far as interest rates go, at nearly 8%, the market is still hot for buying farmland. Since 2008, we have seen farmland values steadily increase. Dakota's, North Dakota's Piper auction is what set this record setting land sale yesterday. According to their post on Facebook, the auction that took place was in the very northeastern court part of the state and the land sold for $17,500 per acre. This is sold supposedly to a uh, family farming operation. The 5.6 million or 2.8 million per quarter breaks down to uh, nearly $18,500 per FSA crop acre. Jim Rothermitch, who we've had on this podcast before, uh, Vice President of Appraisal, calls this a bell ringer for the state of North Dakota. 
looking at Iowa, he says land markets are also staying the same and will be steady since peaking around May in 2022. Market has seen a small percentage of sales peak high, but yet still seeing sales north of $20,000 an acre are possible. So North Dakota set their own record. Iowa and Illinois will continue to battle for the overall record sales per acre just on sheer volume. Lots of auctions on the calendar. Uh, Jim Rothamich does a good job of marketing those and giving you a hub to where you can check the results out all at the same place. Wanted to see if we could find you some extra updates for uh, coming out of Israel and Gaza State, Anthony, Lincoln, he is in Israel today to press the Israeli government about the ongoing offensive in Gaza. Said that it is taking an international toll, not just a toll on those that are on the ground. Of course, Israel's military says it's surrounding the Gaza city and is a bombardment on an enclave that is looking to intensify. They are witnessing dozens dozens of Gaza residents who worked in Israel returning back to their area, which is quite interesting. The border crossings are certainly being highly monitored. Israeli strikes did kill people that were sheltering at schools and in refugee camps. The UN is continuing to investigate that and those attacks altogether. More foreign nationals have left Gaza through that Rafah border crossing that we have talked about. Another 99 passed through yesterday morning, which is only a small figure, but at least is getting things pushed in the right direction. Last couple of pieces, going to hit markets, but also wanted to remind you that this weekend is daylight savings time. So remember to fall back. We started daylight savings time. Uh, as, let's see, the second Sunday of March, and then again in November. So the United States and many other countries have moved forward with a one-hour difference, uh, doing that twice annually. The current March and November system is what has been followed since 2007. I had expected that to be a lot longer in the history, but it seemed like it was during World War I when this initially came about. Nonetheless, 2 a.m. Sunday morning, so Saturday night before you go to bed, don't forget to turn your clocks backwards. But let's take a look at where some of the markets sat in the overnight. Soybean futures for November delivery rose four cents to 13.32 and a quarter. The Chicago Board of Trade is continuing to give us some strong soybean movements. Soy meal, however, overnight was down 20 cents to 4.26 and 10 cents. So interesting there. Wanted to reflect on that price. It's our market conversation on Monday. Corn fell a penny and three quarters to 4.68 and a quarter. A bushel last night. Headlines are stating that that's the lowest December close of the year. Wheat features for December delivery rose a half a cent to 5.66 bushel in Kansas City futures. Lost a penny to 6.40 and a half per bushel. As we look at the live cattle complex, it looks like as they closed, December cattle closed 184.67.
the feeder cattle at 242.62 for November. Uh, and pork contracts look to be even in the overnight as we sit. So thanks for hanging out with me on this Friday edition for your news headlines. Let's get into our conversation for today. Listeners, I'm really excited for today's interview because I think it sets the perspective a little differently than maybe what we've heard so far in mainstream agriculture about a farmer's ability to sequester carbon. We're joined today by Ben Palin, the Director of Ag Management Partners. Ben, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you and good morning. So Ben, before we dig into the meat of today's conversation related to carbon sequestration, talk to us a little bit about Ag Management Partners and your background. Okay, certainly I'm a fifth generation uh, farmer from, grew up in Kansas and um, have been involved in, in Ag uh, for uh, several decades at this point in my career. And um, the work we do kind of spans um, the, the spectrum from so-called high-level work where someone's looking for for uh, uh, a big picture view of a, say a project but also including a lot of ground level work where we're looking at um, agronomic practices on a certain projects and everything in between so it's a pretty diverse mix of things we work on we interact a lot with farmers as well as investors and others in the ag sector and you yourself ben are uh, a farmer is that right in kansas yes, yes. in colorado Oh, wonderful. wonderful. Well, tell us a little bit more about your farming operation. Okay. Well, we raise uh, wheat, corn, sunflowers in a rotation, and no-till is um, the name of the game for us because we're in pretty limited rainfall areas. It's We've practiced no-till for quite a long time, and we were probably one of the earliest adopters of no-till on a large scale in this part of the Great Plains, and uh, as well as moving away from a wheat fallow rotation to some other crops or row crops that I mentioned. And that's, that's been one of the big changes in general in this part of the, of the U.S., uh, uh, more, ro- more rotations and where wheat's no longer the dominant crop in, in many of these areas. And we are working on some efforts to integrate some livestock into some parts of, of uh, the projects we work on because of the idea of having a, a sort of a closed loop system where we can uh, get livestock manure, put it on the land in lieu of commercial fertilizer, and then grow uh, low carbon or carbon neutral grain to feed the livestock. And th- those are in the early, those discussions are in the early stages right now, but it looks like it has some promise. Wonderful. Well, I'm excited to dig into that more here because I think your background as a farmer and a part a director here in Ag Management Partners gives you a unique perspective. And so, you know, I, we ran across this article on successful farming. It's been a few months ago now that it was published, right. but it's really looking at an alternative view to the soil's ability to sequester carbon. And you pose really that it's maybe not this silver bullet that right. a lot of folks in the industry have posed it to be. So how did you come to that conclusion? Well, I think if you if you look back at the, the, some of the early discussions or ideas about carbon sequestration, there's some similarities to some other uh, ideas or, or products, products and services that have um, come to the forefront in agriculture. There's, there's sometimes a lot of hype about a certain product or service, and uh, the reality may turn out different. It's not to say that the those products and services lack promise, but sometimes there's a little bit of overpromising that occurs, and and then reality sets in. But but um, the carbon 
topic is is obviously a very important one for the world overall, and particularly with regard to agriculture. And there are some things that I think are realistic and that farmers can do or should be doing to uh, to to move that along. Um, there's no doubt in my mind that the carbon uh, theme or is not going to go away. It's just how how is it better defined and how can it be monetized in a way that is legitimate uh, for people who want to buy these carbon credits and also done in a way that's um, from a farmer standpoint uh, makes financial and agronomic sense. And, and I'll give you an example. Um, we have a, a project here that's that's uh, involves some organic um, wheat production and the, uh, the, the we've talked to some buyers for potential buyers for the organic wheat and we've decided to keep close track of our carbon footprint as we grow this organic crop so we can document for example every time we are on the land uh, with a certain tillage operation we document how much diesel fuel we use and any other carbon footprint elements that go into it so when that crop is harvested, we'll have a record field by field of, of our quote unquote carbon footprint. Uh, I think that that, I, I can't say that we can monetize that immediately, but I, I think getting started with something like that is pretty important because there are things that will come down the pike uh, that will benefit farmers. One is again, uh, say a carbon index for, for wheat. I know there's, there's talk about one for corn now and there's some financial or tax incentives to grow uh, corn with a low carbon footprint uh, based on its use for ethanol. But I think there's that same potential for other crops. But I think what a farmer should do, uh, again, is to really keep close track field by field of their, their carbon footprint with the thought that eventually that will be fine tuned into something that can turn into money as well as an environmental benefit too. But but it just there, there's so many questions now about how do you measure carbon um, how how much how much improvement can we do with carbon uh, sequestration when say a farmer has been doing no-till practices for 10 or 20 years um, i don't know the answers to all those questions but there are certainly legitimate ones um, for the farmer to ask and also for carbon buyers to to ask and i, I think in a nutshell that um, again it's been the carbon idea has been uh, hyped a bit too much, um, but it's it's going to settle back down to earth, no, no pun intended, and, and we'll find some clearer paths to where there's more legitimacy about it. Um, mm -hmm. and, and it's uh, and it's going to take some involvement, I think, by, by all sectors of the ag uh, industry, mm -hmm. as well as from some ideas from some of the government, like USDA, to, to help with this effort. It's, it's not going away, let's, let's say that. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, to your point, I think one of the biggest questions farmers have is just how do I on an individual level measure the carbon sequestration right. that could be going on my farm? So in your expertise, do you have maybe some initial ideas on how farmers could go about starting to do that? Well, a very, very detailed soil test for sure to, to see where you sit um, on them. The carbon uh, spectrum, and, and certainly if they've got a history of uh, of soil testing uh, over the years, that's that'll provide a little bit more of a, of a roadmap for it. But but um, I, I think that I, one other method that comes to mind is um, 
some some people in the carbon sector are trying to measure carbon by using the equivalent of a satellite imagery and to, to say that they can measure carbon that's in the soil. I have some skepticism about that, although, again, there are some people who are pushing that hard. I, I have not seen enough information to, to let me connect the dots to say, yes, that does make some sense. It's, it's being done with, with trees, too, as well as with cropland. But again, I, uh, I'm not sure it's, it's quite the, the thing it's promised to be. We'll see. So the other big question, I think, is how farmers are actually getting paid out, especially if they don't maybe have these proper mechanisms in place to be able to measure it. And the other the other maybe issue I've heard floating around now, Ben, is lack of clarity around if you have been doing these practices for many years before, are you still going to get paid on the practices you have been doing? Or do you only get paid on practices that you're right. implementing as new practices? Right. Very good question. And I, I think that uh that the market will evolve to where there will be some stream of payments made for to 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 recognize farmers who've been doing these practices for for years and some of that again might come in say sort of a of a backdoor way and I'll, I'll give you an example of what I'm what I'm saying there's a um a fund it's called the soil and water outcomes fund that is not a carbon program per se but they will pay a grower for water and soil conservation practices. So for example, um, uh, we have a farm over enrolling right now in their program and it, it was farmed in a conventional way for a number of years before the current owner who is our client bought it. And um, so this, this year we, we planted corn on a no-till basis. And then after the corn was harvested, uh, we planted wheat on a no-till basis. And part of the reason for the wheat is to provide a cover crop out there. We'll probably harvest that uh, wheat for grain uh, next year, but those practices um, will lead to some stream of, of income uh, for that for the client we have. But at the same time, those practices, I think, are going to help build up the, the carbon. It's, it's In that case, it's the carbon uh, level in soil is quite low, just of the way it's been farmed for a number of years. So I think it's it's going to work in, in both ways. It's the, the, the two programs are not mutually exclusive is what I'm trying to say. So there, there's some practices, a, a change in practice um, can lead potentially to some carbon monetization, but also possibly through some other avenues to generate some income, some incentive essentially, a financial incentive for a farmer to, to do those things. There's, again, this, you know, it's, it's such that we're at an early stage in this, this uh, space and um, I think we will we will find some clear paths to um, to where again it's legitimate for both the farmer as well as the carbon buyers and the public perception is more legitimate I mean it's it's sort of in a way a little bit like the, the discussion of sustainability and that's that's a topic of course that deserves its own discussion but but people look at sustainability in different ways and there needs to be like with carbon it needs to be a, a commonality of view about it. So there's there's a, a consensus, if you will, to where the market is more legitimate. Awesome. Well, Ben, I think that puts a really good summary on, on what we've discussed so far today. But if our listeners have more questions about this subject, what are some good resources you've found to get some of those questions answered? Okay. Well, um, there's um, 
of course, going on the web, I mean, the soil and water outcomes fund I mentioned to you uh, is one to look at. Um, I've actually been doing some research on carbon programs for a client that has a permanent crop um, acreage in California. And um, that's a little bit different, of course, than row crops or small grains as far as some of the sources. But I've just been looking at some of the companies that are in this arena right now. There's a couple, for example, that are in uh, part of programs for, for grassland, for grazing land. Um, so it's, it's essentially that I'm just trying to um, absorb as much information as I can from, from, say, the USDA sources. I've talked to quite a number of farmers who are getting involved with carbon. Also talked to some NRCS folks about it, and just to try to soak in again as much as, as we can. But I think, and if I were to sum it up, I would say for someone who's looking at this, really focus on detailed field level record keeping because I think that will pay down the road as we march down this carbon uh, journey. Fantastic, Ben. Well, thanks again for joining us today. Thank you. You take care. We'll be back again Monday. Another great Market Monday conversation. Looking forward to that. Thanks for hanging out with us all week. But for today, we're going to let you go.